When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Well, first off, you've been an amazing futurist. You've been able to predict stuff with stunning accuracy based on kind of your experience as a policymaker, your experience as a technologist. Now you have this book, Life After Google, which predicts what's coming next in terms of innovation. And you point out some really interesting things about innovation over the past 20 or 30 years. And we'll talk about these predictions. What I'm also really fascinated by is what you just said, which is how does one become a futurist? (laughs) Like, I don't want to just read a futurist's stuff. I want to be smart enough to to know what's coming. You want to know how to be a futurist? Yes. That's sort of what I, my sense of, I've just been two weeks in China. You know, my my book was allegedly number two in China. I don't believe it. And, uh, but. I would believe it because they hate Google so much. I know. Well, something happened. And uh, I did 40 appearances in nine days after an earlier trip where I did a press conference for five hours with uh, 200, 300 reporters. Uh, It's it's really amazing. China has grasped uh, life after Google. And- uh, Are you recording this? Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna ask you, and then I'll do the intro later. Uh, I don't have energy to even do more than one podcast a day. Yeah. How do you do 40 appearances in nine days? You're you're 79 years old, yeah. super futurist, George Gilder, author of Life After Google. That was the beginning of the intro. How do you do how do you have the energy? What do you do for energy? Well, I'm I I run probably five miles a day, roughly. You run I, five miles a day? A, well, often more. I ran ten miles on Sunday. Unfortunately, I stepped on a ice puddle and pulled my Achilles. So it was a very painful run. And I, in walking up to <laughs> your uh, stand-up New York uh, was painful on my Achilles. But, well, but I do run. I, I've, I, I've won 10, uh, 10 straight uh, age group in uh, road races from half marathons to 10K. Okay. To, Okay, so how do you even, I mean, I'm 50, you're essentially going to be 80 within a year. How do you have the energy to run five miles a day? Well, I, I mean, I've done it all my life. I, I but, just, it's, I, I really feel it's necessary to my whole metabolism. Has it become more difficult? Like, I slow down. I mean, I, I run half as fast as I did as a kid. Uh, you know, I I run, you know, I would run four thirty miles as a kid. Now I run 
nine minute miles or eight, you know, something for half marathons. And do you take supplements or what do you? No, I don't particularly take supplements. I, what do I take? I, I don't, I really don't, uh, I don't consume lots of uh, vitamins. Do you think I, it's genetics? Like clearly, clearly I'm well, just trying to. My mother's a hundred now, and she celebrated her hundredth birthday by playing a little concert with Yo-Yo Ma. So she, she's uh, she still can play the piano at a hundred. So I do have good genes, uh, but uh, but I just love running. I mean, it's just been my the way I keep alert and awake and and uh, rub myself up, I, it's, it's, it's important to me. If I don't, I'm, I've got a very grim uh, six weeks ahead of me because of my Achilles. I'm, uh, I hope that I'm gonna be able to cross country ski and I think I will be, but it's not a sure thing. And, and other than that, we're gonna get into the books and the investing, which is obviously, you know, high energy uh, activities, even though people often might not think they are, but what other things do you do at the age of 80 where people say, George, are you crazy? You're 80, almost 80 years old. Why are you doing this? Well, I, I run up, I run up mountains. I like to do that. When I go to, uh, out, out West in the winter, I ski up the, the Vale or, or, um, Aspen or one of these mounts I ski Beaver Creek I ski up and then ski down so I don't have to pay for the uh so of course uh, you ski up at the age of 80 up the highest mountains in the yeah, world well, why not I was out at uh uh Jackson Hole you know where they have the fed fed meeting every year we had an anti fed meeting american principals had an anti-fed meeting out there and uh, I impressed everybody by running up the uh, Jackson Hole so, peak there. So you stay, or, I mean, you've been active in like either book writing, futurism, and at first policymaking since like the 60s. Yeah. So yeah. you're still pretty active. You go to these meetings I don't think I would do that. At, at maybe I should think to no, myself. I don't know. Look at you. You. You're. Uh, you. You've already caught up with me in number of books written. And well, uh, you written got a, Your a book comedy book. club. That's a. And it, I. I did st start a, a, a record company at one point. Oh really? To, to support my brother was a country music singer, and uh, I. I published his record and tried to create a record company. So so this is fascinating that, you know, your whole, so now I'll get into the full intro. You know, George Gilder, you just wrote a book, Life After Google, which, you know, suggests, you know, the beginnings of the end of companies like Google and you give a whole treatise why, which we'll get into. But like you mentioned, you've written 19 books. You've been a futurist for a long time. Your book, uh, Life After Television, I believe written in 1990, for instance, accurately predicts, you know, smartphones. You want me to do my, my number? Uh, I said the computer of the future would be as portable as your watch, as personal as your wallet. It would recognize speech. It would navigate streets. It would 
collect your mail and your news. It just might not do windows, but it would do doors, open doors to your future. And uh, Steve Jobs did read the book and distribute it to friends. So, so I believe that I had some vague influence on the evolution of, of the iPhone. But that's... Uh, and, and smartphones in general, whether you were involved in the revolution of it or just predicting it is still amazing because mm -hmm. even though moore's law which suggests you know computing roughly computing power mm -hmm. doubles every two years might have suggested that you accurately taking these laws and saying what does that actually mean mm -hmm. five ten twenty years in the future is it was really amazing and you know you've written 19 books in total before that you were heavily involved in policy, like you were a speechwriter for Nelson Rockefeller, George Romney, um, Nixon, am I Nixon, correct? Nixon, yeah. Well, I just want to ask about this and then we'll get into the futurist stuff. What's a good political speech? Like what are the components of a good political speech? You, 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 I, I, my rule with speech writing was to see the candidate as little as possible because uh, what, what the candidate really wants is the best speech for a particular a uh, uh, situation, and and I want to do the best possible speech that I could write for that situation, and and if I talk to the candidate about what he wants to say, then I have to pay excessive attention to his often casual ideas about the. Uh, event right, so, the so i would i my rule when i was working in the senate for senator matthias of maryland and I, I would work all night and write my speeches and deliver them in the morning and then go and sleep during the day i and uh, with most can the better the candidate was the worse the speeches i thought um Jacob Javits, for example, I wrote speeches for him, and he knew exactly what he wanted to say already. He was ferociously articulate and had virtually no no use for me. Uh, but Richard Nixon, he he just assigned speeches, and I didn't have to talk to him or anything. I'd deliver the speeches through Haldeman and Ehrlichman, the whole channel. And uh, Nixon, Nixon would w deliver them word for word. It was very gratifying writing speeches for Nixon. You know, I feel like we could do a whole podcast on this. So I, I just want to ask you like one or two more questions. So what's interesting is like Nelson Rockefeller, Charles Matthias, they at that time were talking mid 70s. Yeah. They were sort of representing the liberal wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. Richard Nixon, it was always kind of unclear. No. He came from McCarthyism, but he had some liberal tendencies as well. And I would imagine with someone like Nixon, he didn't trust himself to make his own speech because of his experience with Kennedy, where him being authentic failed for him. Uh, and so maybe that's why he would just sit, trust the speechwriter. Yeah, he really did trust the speechwriters, and he had good speechwriters. I mean, uh, I mean, Roger Isles and uh, Buchanan, uh, you know, was was terrific. He's one of the great speechwriters of our time, uh, Pat Buchanan. Pat, and, Pat uh, Buchanan versus Ted Sorensen. Who's who's better? 
I think Pat Buchanan was a lot better than Ted Sorensen. I mean, Ted Sorensen could do these ding-dong uh, sort of phrases that live in history because they were delivered by a, a, a successful president who died young. But uh, I think Pat Buchanan was... I disagree with Pat on a lot of stuff, but Pat Buchanan was the best I saw for just really composing a beautiful, poetic speech and for a candidate who would deliver it word for word. I mean, that was... Uh, so, 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 again, what, are the, what would you say are the components? What are the, what are the kind of, let's say, five points you would have to hit in a political speech and you would know, okay, this is going to be a good political speech. I, I, I don't think of, I, I think you, you know, my essential thesis is that the reason uh, politicians are so boring, the reason you, you really don't want to listen to them when they speak most of the time, I mean, is, is that they are, are the product of uh market surveys, they, they're a product of polls. They try to tell the audience what it already thinks. And there's nothing so boring as to being told what you already think in a slightly smoother version. Uh, it's a zero entropy speech in information theory terms. It has no information in it and uh, because if, if everything I say today, you already know, which is a real possibility. Uh, I, I doubt <laughs> There that. will be zero entropy in my communications. But, but, and, but then again, you take a look at like, I'm just going to use Sorensen as an example with his most famous speech. Ask not what yeah. you can do for your country. Ask what you can do, for, ask what your country can do for you. There's that, what's it called? Anaphora. There's this speech anaphora, technique. Anaphora, yeah. Yeah. So it seems like the ability to use these techniques to kind of, you know, yeah. almost like grasp the mind who's yeah. listening is, yeah. is really the point of the speechwriter. Yeah. It's, it's the point of the poet, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, phrasing things in ways that are more memorable and uh, have more adhesive uh, impact. And, uh, and your point about zero information being spread, it's, that reminds me of the basis of hypnotism. So you, a hypnotist can't hypnotize someone who doesn't already want to be hypnotized. Uh, they have to get you to do something you already want to do. Right. And it seems like that's what politicians you're saying are sort of doing. It's like almost a form of hypnosis on the audience. Yeah, well, that's an interesting... Um, I'm, I'm interested in hypnosis and uh, psychic phenomena and such, and uh, I believe they they do uh, entail distracting the rational faculties and allowing the unconscious powers of the mind to come to the fore. Have, and, have you ever uh, seen an example of like? of that where you didn't understand what was happening? Oh, we... yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, I don't... I, I believe that this... that uh, psychic powers are real and that uh, we've kind of forgotten them in this era. As science has spuriously disproven the existence of psychic powers and thus has uh, blinded itself to whole dimensions of the mind that uh, actually distinguish human minds from AI and all these other 
uh, possibilities. And yet, and yet, the example of you is pretty interesting because let's tie that into futurism. Obviously, you know they call it like scientists call it futurism, but in prior generations they would call it prophecy <laughs> for the same exact thing, <laughs> yeah. which is of course related to you know ideas beyond beyond our comprehension. Do you think it's connected? Well, I, I I don't think you can explain how you think. I think uh, thought is a product of consciousness. Uh, most uh, neuroscientists imagine that consciousness is an epiphenomenon and a, an a side effect of thought. That uh, that uh, they understand logical processing and uh, they imagine that if logical processing is accelerated to high enough rate that somehow consciousness will emerge. And, uh, and I believe that this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the mind. And it, it uh, undermines much of the neuroscience, the, the prevailing neuroscience, and almost all the computer science that purports to be Im imitating minds. So, so you'll, you, we're gonna we're gonna gradually use this to segue into the heart of your book because you make a point in Life After Google, which I think is excellent, and which I could speak to from a different angle. But artificial intelligence is not what people think. It's not like suddenly some robot is going to be stocking shelves in Walmart <laughs> and suddenly like wake up and be human. There's no such thing. That's like, right. Like there's no, it's it's a hundred percent of artificial intelligence people don't realize is essentially advanced statistics yeah. combined with faster and faster computer processing speeds. That's right. And, and that's enough to fool people into, oh, it's acting like a human. Just because it recognizes your face using very complicated statistics and very fast NVIDIA graphics processing mm -hmm. chips doesn't mean it's smart. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean it knows the taste it of an knows apple anything. is good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so why do you think, and I remember this from 1990 being in graduate school, that um, they, the professors knew this. Like They would use artificial intelligence, that phrase, to get grants from the government because the government <laughs> was stupid and they wanted to have, <laughs> think that computers would come awake. They knew the computers can't just awaken. So, 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 but why do people still think in this thing, this singularity, where all of a sudden all this data combined with all the statistics and you're going to have like you know, uh, a, a sexy robot wake up. <laughs> I, I think it's the materialist superstition. I think it's... But it's really smart people now who believe well, that computers are going to well, just quote-unquote wake up. Well, it's, it's the smartest people in the world uh, uh, believe in the materialist superstition. Uh, they, uh, they believe that uh, the universe can be, is explicable entirely in terms of chemistry and physics. And that assumption, I believe, is manifestly false, but it is a religious conviction underlying almost all neuroscience and computer science. They, and, and the amazing thing is it's utterly disproven by the computer itself. You know, you can know the position of every atom and molecule in a computer and not have the slightest idea what it is accomplishing, what the computer's function is at that point is utterly opaque to... Uh, a physicist who knows 
everything about the physical substrate of all the chips in the computer. So uh, why do you imagine that uh, understanding all the molecules and atoms of the brain will uh, define a human mind? And I gather, and, and I think it's, it's preposterous, it, it doesn't. And uh, the materialist superstition is disproven supremely in computer, in the very computer science that underlies all these great companies in Silicon Valley that are leading us off a cliff today, where they imagine that uh, they're going to usurp human minds and uh, and uh, destroy employment. Uh, necessitate a guaranteed annual income for all of us to retreat to beaches and while uh, Brennan Page uh, fly off with Leon Musk to some nearby planet in a winner-take-all universe. You know, uh, this, this kind of three different directions I want to go with what you just said. One of them is like really in the weeds on on information theory, so maybe I'll leave that until post-podcast. But uh, uh, let's let's take the artificial intelligence stuff. Well, first off, A, you've been an amazing futurist. You've been able to predict stuff with stunning accuracy based on kind of your experience as a policymaker, your experience as a technologist. Uh, you've really had well thought out and, and correct predictions over the years. Now you have this book, Life After Google, which predicts what's coming next in terms of innovation. And you point out some really interesting things about innovation over the past 20 or 30 years. Uh, but I want to I want to start off first with what you just said about artificial intelligence and, and um, what you refer to, um, I'll refer to it as, as universal basic income, this idea that, you know, AI is going to supplant so many jobs that eventually humans are going to need to make just free income from the government or whatever. Yeah. And so let's let's just pursue that for a second and then and then I want to get this kind of the, some of the main predictions in in life after Google. Um but so I can think of two examples. One is when when horses were replaced by cars, the people working on horses got jobs working on cars. Mm. And the other thing is when when ATMs came out, everyone thought, oh, that would be the end of bank tellers. But it just increased the profits of banks and they put up more branches and more bank tellers were hired. Yeah, well, this is what I, the key point, which I've said for decades, so it's not a novelty, is that uh, uh, people don't get employed because they're unproductive. You don't employ somebody because they're a bad comedian and you can employ, if, if they're no uh, good. We, we might hear, but yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, artificial intelligence and all other technologies enhance human productivity and thus render humans more employable while at the same time generating the capital to endow new work. So let's let's break that up because there's two things there. One is if you have robots shelving Walmart instead of 100,000 people shelving, putting products on the shelves mm -hmm. of all the Walmarts, where, yes, Walmart will have an increase in profits, an increase in billions of dollars of cash, and you're basically saying 
um, and this is related to all your stuff in the 80s on yeah. supply side economics, but you're basically saying that billion dollars will find its way into new companies of the economy that will employ people. Yeah. So, so the, the people who say the opposite say, for the first time ever, the people who were only good at shelving shelves, where are they going to go? Because now it's only robots. So now there isn't an industry replacing them. It's robots replacing them. Well, I, I just think the whole, it, you know, to go job by job that way in a kind of micro analysis isn't uh, very effective. I mean, you, I can't predict exactly what each person in Walmart is going to end up doing. I can predict that in a much wealthier society, there will be more projects that uh, indiv each individual will be more productive, capable of, of a greater variety of functions and, and uh, unleashed uh, more creativity and uh, thus more and better and safer and more creative and exciting jobs will result. Uh, right now, uh, uh, shelving products at Walmart must be one of the dreariest jobs <laughs> on earth. Uh, and all through the history of economics, uh, technologies have emerged and replaced the worst jobs and released human beings to do better things. And, and I, I believe that the current changes uh, partly because of a cultural shift against industry, uh, reflecting uh, a lot of people's uh, satisfaction with their own material uh, achievements or material possibilities. That uh, as a result, of, as a result of this. Uh, the change is rather less dramatic than the change of the Industrial Revolution of the twentieth, uh, nineteenth century. You know that that was a when uh, everybody left the farms and entered the cities and the factories. That was a complete uh, transformation, and most of the Luddite propositions were introduced during that period with the same kind of confidence that people bring to bear today on AI and AI, artificial intelligence, and and they were completely dis disproven. The more investment in machines during the Industrial Revolution, the more jobs, better pay, greater longevity, more possibilities. It, it just, there was no uh, meaningful destruction of jobs during the Industrial Revolution. And, and I have I have an example with internet technology that totally agrees with you, but I'll get to that in a second. There's one thing to say when we read Life After Google and we see all your predictions or your, your older book, Life After Television, or your other books where you make all these predictions. What I'm also really, and we'll talk about these predictions, what I'm also really fascinated by is what you just said, which is how does one become a futurist? <laughs> like, I don't want to just read a futurist's stuff. Yeah. I want to be smart enough to be to know what's coming. And what you just said makes very common sense. So I'll give you my example. When when the web was getting big, yeah. so in 1994, nobody knew what the World Wide Web was in, <laughs> yeah. in corporate America. And when they were, when when corporate America was writing 
networking applications, they would often write their own networking protocols. And so there was all these network software engineers in business, smart, educated, even PhD people who once the web was around, they they were all out of a job, it would seem. Now, obviously it wasn't like a whole class of PhDs and network engineers became unemployed and started working at McDonald's. Like they found other things to do. Yeah. They started companies. They they developed, they were smart enough to develop other yeah. ways to use their skill yeah. sets. So the internet itself should have like wiped out millions and millions of jobs, and it simply didn't. The yeah, economy is at its yeah. highest and point it's ever. It's a vast transformation, the internet itself. Right. I mean, it, it's not a small thing. And the fact the internet itself multiplied jobs overwhelmingly for the vict for its victims, software engineers found uh huge proliferation of opportunities it, it it just it's it's just a fact of life that technology suppression of technology destroys jobs and so the the big threat to employment in the world is luddites is people who imagine that uh, we have to uh, that the new technologies will wreak havoc on employment. They will wreak havoc on employment, but they also will release all sorts of new possibilities and new uh, new employment. So, so history agrees with you because we could find a thousand examples. Mm. We could even find examples from your own predictions 20 years ago or mm. 30 years ago. But Elon Musk doesn't agree with you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, Elon Musk is a brilliant entrepreneur, but he's a fool in many ways. Right, and so because he said we're going to need a universal basic income. Yeah. But what I want to know is how does somebody, what tool set are you reaching into to, to, be, to be so accurately a futurist? Like well, what, what are you looking at and how do you think about problems so you can come up with this assessment? Because it's very clear. Oh, yeah. Technology is going to create more jobs, and that's what's always happened throughout history. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't everyone think this? Well, no. well, a lot of people don't think this. So, how does what are well, you doing right well, now? Well, because because I'm a I really am a generalist. I mean, I I you know I began writing about sex and family. Those were my although my very first book was about politics. It was called The Party That Lost Its Head. It was about the Goldwater era. And I wrote it with my college roommate, Bruce Chapman, who's, who's still writing books today at uh, the Discovery Institute. And, and uh, but, uh, you know, I started writing about politics. I then wrote about sex. Then I wrote about uh, poverty. And then I saw that uh, to understand poverty, you really had to understand wealth. And so I wrote about economics. And my first major book about economics was called Wealth and Poverty, and it sold literally millions of copies around the world. It was the number one book in France for six months. It was uh, Ronald Reagan's favorite book for years. Uh, I was Ronald Reagan's most quoted living authors. Uh, You know, it... it, uh, but that was wealth and poverty, was economics. But as I wrote that, the most exciting thing I've encountered was a cover story. You want to know how to be a futurist? Yes. I read a cover story in Time magazine about the microchip. And uh, that was my introduction to the microchip. 
And uh, I decided this was the most exciting thing happening in the world. So I would stop. I mastered economics. Other economists were not selling millions of copies of their books. So, so I decided to learn microchips. And, uh, and I thought to really understand the, what microchips meant to me was a real shift of all technology. Uh, until and physics was mostly about exerting forces on materials and moving them from outside. But uh, microchips seemed to be the first technology that consisted of manipulating matter from the inside and, and really reducing matter in a way or expanding matter, if you wish, uh, through information. And, and uh, so, so this seemed to be a fundamental pivot in the history of technology. And so I wrote four books on microchips and then fiber optics seemed to me to be the most exciting thing happening. So I wrote about fiber optics. And of course it's the combination of the two computers. Yeah. Few, so, yeah. so, so essentially let me, let me unpack it. So, so previously matter would move from somebody would can manufacture something would yeah. manufacture matter like a car yeah. and it would get transported to someone else and that's how things yeah. moved around or someone would print something in a newspaper and it would be delivered to somebody and that's yeah. how ma even information was transmitted yeah. so now what the microchip did in in the mind of a future i'm just trying to yeah. uh reverse engineer the mind of a futurist how do yeah. you what you saw was okay now information is scalable. Now yeah. there's like no stop to how information yeah. can spread. And particularly when we combine it with the fact that computers are getting faster all the time, what does this, you ask the question, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. And, and that's kind of, you're, you're asking, given a new state of the world, yeah. what does this, what does this mean? Yeah. And you start to think of all the things that it might mean and you eliminate the things that are ridiculous based on your, and this is where being a generalist comes in, based on your information of economics, okay, information is not gonna be used to you know, create more flowers and peace in the world, but it will be used for this, 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 yeah, and this. Uh, uh. Well, that's, that's pretty much, and I met Carver Mead, who was uh, you know, the Caltech professor, who was Gordon Moore's uh, researcher, at Intel and who both re did the research and named Moore's Law. So from the very beginning, my teacher was Carver Mead, who was, in my view, the most brilliant figure in, uh, in technology of the last uh, half century or so. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting 
and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So that means I left out one thing in terms of the making of a futurist. I said one one is you um, you know look at all the new innovations and see what it could possibly mean. The uh, the second is being a generalist allows you to see how this might affect different areas of life. And because so many people are narrow educated with yeah. their PhDs, yeah. being a generalist allows you to see across disciplines. But the third thing is, and I noticed this in your book Life After Google you actually go out and meet everybody. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's one thing if you read them, it's another thing, you go out and you meet the founders of blockchain and Ethereum and, and all this stuff, and you meet as many people as possible yeah. and you go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. What's the importance of, of meeting people in futurism as opposed to just reading them? Well, most of, uh, if you're writing about technology, most of the, key figures don't write or or if they do write it's uh relatively meager technical documents uh so in order to really cover uh silicon valley as i did back with uh, rich carl guard and uh, uh forbes asap i helped launch forbes asap with uh R- with rich carl guard and 
I went out there and uh, in order to cover what was going on, you had to go to the companies and talk to the engineers who were designing the products. You, they weren't writing. There was nothing you could read that uh, could tell you what uh, John Musaurus was doing at uh, MicroUnity or what uh, uh, was happening in the optical industry, uh, Will Hicks or well, all these people were on frontiers building new devices and did not have time to actually write about them. I could read the books, but the books were all out of date by the time uh, uh, I wanted to write on the subjects they addressed. So you would be able to take your theories based on generalism and the fact that you knew what innovations were happening and then sort of run these theories by by actually meeting the, the people, yeah, running yeah. these theories against them and see how they responded and what they were working on and so on, and thus developed your yeah. futuristic notions. But let me ask you, where do mutual funds get it wrong? Because mutual funds are visiting the companies too, like a tech mutual yeah, fund. Yeah, they don't. Hey, the, the mutual funds really, it's a, it's a sad picture, but they're terrified by out, insider trading laws. And so mm. uh, they, they really are part of what I call the outsider trading scandal. Mm. I mean, it's, uh, you, uh, you know, all significant investment is insider trading. I mean, you, you have to have an intimate inside knowledge of these companies and their technologies and their inventions and, what and their strategies. And you really can't have that kind of information just reading what are increasingly the products of public relations firms and lawyers and these technology companies. So, 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 so I, I think that, that mutual funds are pretty worthless. I mean, they're, they're and, and they're increasingly depleting uh, the sources of real investment information that animates a successful and creative economy. And, and of course they're draining fees from society like yeah, all yeah. along the way. Yeah. But, but so, 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 so let's look at really good investing then it seems to have, one of two forms. One is an investor does the work like you, meeting people, yeah. and let's not call it insider, but let's call it an in intimate information. Yeah, intimate. Right? Yeah, because you're not. No one's saying, "Hey, this drug's about to be approved. You should buy it." That's like kind of the illegal insider trading. Mm. But on the other side, mutual funds are are too too scared to get any information. Yeah, you can't. I mean, if if you today. Uh, the way the SEC works is it uh, runs an AI program essentially across uh, the markets and identifies anomalies, which are unexpected profits, and, uh, and assumes that unexpected profits are prima facie evidence of wrongdoing. So, so they've intimidated all investors, so they can't really... Uh, explore companies closely anymore. So returns across the markets have bi bifurcated. Uh, the, you, uh, they're in Warren Buffett or Google or one of these uh, companies that uh, accumulates large amounts of capital and never invests it without utter in 
intimate inside knowledge of, of the companies they purchase. Or it's venture capitalists who never uh, invest a dollar without intimate knowledge. And of, then there it's legal. And they're legal. Those, so these, this is where all the action happens. And all the rest of the market is, is almost devoid of information now. It, it's based on the proposition that accounting uh, da data is actually significant. It's all rear view mirror. It's almost meaningless. And so uh, what the, how mutual funds function, which is another abuse of uh, artificial intelligence from my point of view, is just to survey all these uh, uh, accounting data for anomalies of various kinds that are correlated with outperformance. And, and so it, it's really, and it, it has no real um, valid investment content from my point of view. And yet, you know, just for instance, you visiting a computer and seeing a computer company and seeing, oh, they're working on a new chip Mutual funds might be afraid of that, but it's not really inside information because yeah, or it you, isn't. Don't, you don't really know if that means the stock's going to go up or it might even go down because of that chip. Like no one, it, it's not real. It's not, the SEC would not consider that inside information, but the mutual funds are afraid because they don't understand because, because of this uh, disbelief in human creativity. They, these... Uh, models of the economy and of business that are, um, or that are the basis of investment, are, are all false. They're all they're all based on the idea that essentially uh, creativity is sort of a random accident, and that if you uh, uh, and that. Uh, you know, markets are completely efficient and ultimately deterministic. And so that if you have an exceptional result, it's probably the, re the evidence for a crime. And uh, this is really what uh, is taught, and it's what is, uh, uh, it it's dominates computer science, it dominates the SEC, it dominates uh, the prevailing wisdom in most of our university economics faculties. I mean, Paul Romer, who is the most brilliant of the economists who focuses on, on uh, entrepreneurship, he's at Berkeley, just won the Nobel Prize for his theories of entrepreneurship. And you know how he defines entrepreneurship, mm -mm. it's the reassemblage of chemical elements. And uh, he points out his great insight is that there are lots of chemical elements and they combine in all sorts of uh, ways. There are huge degrees of freedom in the domain of chemical elements. So entrepreneurs actually have quite a lot of freedom in their activity, but it's all ultimately a function of chemical elements. You know, in other words, the desire in these universities to uphold the materialist superstition is so powerful 
that, that uh, they can't see that entrepreneurs operate in domains of information, imagination, counterfactuals, uh, projections of all kinds uh, in, in uh, manifesting absolute creativity. So, so and, when you say chemical elements, is that like uh, a, a metaphor in the sense that, you know, like let's, the, take, let's take Uber, one chemical is empty seats in a car, another component is, you know, you need some way to, another chemical is you need a way to mediate transactions, another chemical is, you know. No, the, no, oh no, it, it, uh, uh, Romer is talking about actual chemicals. You know, it, it chip is uh, silicon and oxygen and and all the indium phosphide, whatever it is, uh, aluminum. That he's talking about the chemicals that comprise all matter, and his view is that all enterprise consists of taking these chemicals, which are the material endowment of the universe and putting them together in, in different ways is what enterprise is about. That, that that's what invention is. It's, it's, it's a purely material process. Uh, he does, he recognizes the existence of things called recipes. And he, he believes that, that uh, entrepreneurs um, experiment with different recipes and these recipes might identify a particular and differentiate an automobile from a, a microchip or a airplane or a steel mill or a insurance policy. I, I, I really, I just think that the orientation toward materialism is crippling, and that's that's what they are fundamentally materialists. Well, I want to ask you what you mean by materialist, but but this is the I want to segue into the um, life after Google. Uh, I love your statement in the book that if you're getting something for free, that means you're the product, <laughs> and I thought that was. Genius, because I never thought of that before. That, that's not me. That's that's Tim Cook of Apple. I think I don't know who told Tim, but but it's. But you repeated it in the book, and yeah. I never thought about yeah. like for instance, you know, with Google, I always thought, oh well, Google's customer is are the advertisers, which is sort of true. That's yeah. how they make their money. They yeah. sell, they sell you. But the, what they did, what what's happening is they're selling you to the advertiser. So yeah. you're the product yeah. and the search engine is just this vehicle to get you to the advertiser. And, uh, it made me think of all these freemium type things where, um, essentially the product and, and depending on how little I pay or free to discounted to whatever, yeah. you know, along the way on the product. And, and that's, and, and, and your point was essentially that this, big data combined with advertising is sort of bringing about the downfall of the current crop of Silicon Valley companies in the long run. Yeah. Well, I, th I think that's, that, that's true because it's a way to avoid prices. And I just come, I've just come from uh, uh, 10 days in China uh, where, you know, the big Chinese companies 
uh, uh, Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, ByteDance, these big new Chinese companies all uh, get about 10 to 15% of their revenues from advertising, while Google and Facebook get 95%. And ultimately, ads, if you're on the internet, you know that ads aren't ads, they're minuses, they're value subtracted. And, uh, and so ultimately- uh, are they, let, me, let me contest a little bit on that because part of Google's appeal is that instead of me seeing random ads, they show me ads that uh, I might be more interested in. That's absolutely true. And, and that's why Google uh, has, is dominant now. They're, they're dominant in this era because as they really followed, in my view, the, uh, although not explicitly, but they followed what I prescribed in life after television. I mean, I, I, I believe that I want Google and these companies to know as much as possible about me so that they don't inflict ads that I don't want to see. That was the whole message. It was a theme of life after television was that in the future, because of the internet, we no longer have to watch ads that we didn't want to see. And, and, and that depended on on uh, these companies invading our privacy. And I, I wanted these companies to invade our privacy more rather than less. What's offensive are all the uncanny valley experiences where they almost know what we want, but, uh, but, mm. but actually don't and, and are offensive in their misunderstanding of our actual desires. So so, and, so, what you just said is really interesting because this applies to what you earlier said about in terms of what makes a general, uh, what makes a futurist is having a generalist ability, having an ability to look across domains. So you use the phrase just now, uncanny valley, which is a phrase I've never heard in this particular context, but it makes, as soon as you say it, it makes like brilliant sense. The phrase uncanny valley, valley comes from the virtual reality world no, no. where the virtual reality is not 100% accurate. So the brain actually feels like your body feels nauseous. That's like right. your brain actually turns your body off because yeah. it knows this is not the real world. Yeah, yeah. And they haven't figured out how to, they call it the uncanny valley because they haven't figured out how to cross it yet. Yeah, yeah. But you applying it to Google and, and big data, you're basically saying, Google is trying with their invasion of your privacy to reconstruct this virtual you so they know the exact ads for you. Yeah. Now they're 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 slightly off. Like maybe they're 80% there, so they create so instead they throw up these ads that are almost there but you get that same feeling of nausea you would get in yeah. virtual reality. <laughs> And so yeah. I just unpacked what you said, but is that yeah. roughly That's that's roughly that's exactly right. And uh, uh however uh I, I think that it's a more serious problem with the ads. I mean, on your smartphones, you really don't want ads most of the time. I mean, you, you want to be able to look for ads, but to have ads popped up at you is uh, offensive on a smartphone. And uh, as I say, if, if your phone is really smart, the first thing you want it to do is block ads. Because ads are about thirty percent, uh, consume about thirty to forty percent of the bandwidth on the smartphone. They slow down your smartphone, and 
and you almost never want to see him. Uh, the, I mean, uh, you know, uh, point, you only click through on 0.06% of, of ads, and half the click-throughs are by mistake. So the actual click-through rate is about 0.03% of the ads. And that's a click-through rate that maybe suffices if you're a Nigerian prince trying to sell gold mines to your to gullible grandmothers, but it's spam uh, for a, a major company. And, and they're all coming the colliding with this problem today. And uh, the Chinese companies are not colliding with this problem. The Chinese companies have really figured out what people want to do on their smartphones. And uh, that's why they're... And they're charging for it. They're charging for it. So like, what's an example? Micropayments of all, all you know, um, WeChat has all these uh, little uh, icons and avatars and and ways to communicate and 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 they charge you. Uh, they figured out all sorts of ways to collect money. That most of their uh, revenues come from collecting money from customers who purchase various digital products online to enhance their internet experience, whether it's with a game or with uh, or meeting people or whatever it is. And uh, they don't depend on, they've just, they don't depend on advertising, on value subtracted intrusions in on the attention of their customers. And that's, that's, uh, that's why they're going to be a really uh, a big threat to the four big companies in the world today. Uh, the four big, biggest market cap companies are Microsoft, Apple, Google, and uh, uh, Facebook. Or? Face, no, not Facebook. Facebook's about number seven. It's uh, Amazon okay. and and I, but Amazon I, charges. They yeah, oh, I think I I don't think it, my I'm often said to be uh, predicting doom for Amazon. I don't. I think Amazon really has figured out how to charge. However, they depend on a walled garden model, and I think that uh, the walled garden model is going to uh, break down. You're going to have to learn how to collect. Uh, Money in a in a universe of uh, communications that that you can't control yourself. Uh, all these companies want to control their uh, customers, and in that effort to control customers is, although reasonable, if you're in a mall where you get attracted to one store and you you, you can't be in several stores at once, but on the internet, you you potentially can uh, be many places at once, and you can compare prices across boundaries, and you, you know it's it's a whole different challenge. So 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 many things to unpack there. So one is in your book, I was fascinated that I, I did not know this. Um, you know, usually we think of Google as a search engine and Amazon as a store, yeah. but actually. Product search, like if I search 
what is the best computer? I'm doing, you're, you're, you made the point in the book that more product searches now happen on Amazon yeah. than on Google. Yeah. So I didn't know that. Um, second thing is uh, the concept of walled garden. Uh, uh, you know, I think the, the first example I think is, you know, Apple, you, yeah. you couldn't, you know, a lot of times when in, you bought a microcomputer and the, even now, if you buy a gaming computer, you can pull out a chip, you can put in yeah. a faster chip and so on. Apple computers, you can't take them apart. Yeah, you yeah. can't change them anyway. Uh, the operating system is is fixed. You can't yeah. change it. No yeah. outside developer can change it. Only Apple makes Apple computers. Yeah. Whereas like Google, Android, uh, the Android operating system, which is the most popular operating system in the world now, is not a walled garden. Yeah. Any phone company can use Android, change it however they want. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, that's how they became the most popular in the world. So that's walled garden versus unwalled garden. Yeah. But Amazon might be different in that there are studies that show I'd rather buy the same product, even though it's more expensive on Amazon than on the product's own website. And so, so, so Amazon has some advantage by being a trusted walled garden. Definitely, they have a big advantage, and they uh, they have a security advantage. Uh, they have uh, they've got one click shopping, which is obviously desirable, and uh, all sites should have it. It's uh, you know Amazon is uh, one of the dominant companies of this era because they mastered that walled garden model, actually pioneered and mastered it, and and I'm just saying that. Uh, because that model doesn't work across national boundaries very well, because it doesn't work across protocol boundaries very well, because it uh, uh, now opens you to all sorts of credit card theft and, uh, and uh, combinatorial explosions of pins and usernames and passwords and and then security questions and iris scans ultimately and uh, I, I just this the the model of the walled garden is at its peak today and uh, and it's collapsing it's going to collapse because the whole it's micropayments are going to be feasible and uh and uh and cross protocol communications are going to get increasingly facile and uh this effort to isolate your customer is going to uh break down more and more as years pass so so Isolate your customer, meaning the intermediary. So Amazon's yeah. really an intermediary between the sellers and the customers. And, and so Amazon isolates them so that the maker of a product doesn't know the customer, yeah. but Amazon knows the customer because yeah. it's the intermediary. So you're so so I, I wanna I wanna stay on that point, but we're, but where we're eventually heading is that there's gonna be more peer-to-peer, -peer, that the, yeah. the the seller will know the customer directly and Amazon won't be in the middle as an intermediary right. Right. And, and that might happen and that's by the way that might happen with Uber so so right now Uber is the the wall between yeah. the car and the customer Airbnb yeah. the, is the wall between the house and the customer mm -hmm. and so yeah. on but 
And, and it's because of the trust of the platform, because the wall garden is trustworthy somehow. There's a trust factor. Yeah. Um, but let's, but we'll get to that in a second. Walk me through, because this is the hardest to kind of believe. Google seems to have such a strong moat on just search. Walk me through how Google could eventually lose trust with customers and, and we won't use Google. Well, I don't, I don't think, I think we'll use Google. I mean, I, uh, IBM is still an important company. Uh, Microsoft has returned to the lead among, um, you know, the biggest market cap company in the world. I think at this moment might be Microsoft. But it's because they switched models. Like yeah. IBM was a typewriter company, then it was a mainframe company, uh, uh, and now who's developing blockchain for Walmart? IBM. No. So they they morph. It's like Nokia used to make boots and then they became <laughs> the world's biggest handset manufacturer. Oh, right. But Google every time they've tried to do something new, it it they they can't make money out of it. They only make money out of search. Yeah, that's and and I think that's that's this um they're too ready to give their product away for free. They they aren't being inventive about collecting money from customers. And in a capitalist economy, if you aren't collecting money from customers, you really don't have customers. You, you may be, uh, you avoid any liabilities to customers. But they're collecting and money from the advertisers. The advertisers, those are, are their customers and they're a relatively small number and they've, they've bought a whole set of advertising assets that allow them to dominate this market. And, and they do very well in many aspects of it. And they aid lots of small businesses in reaching their markets. And, uh, and you know, I, I like uh, what Google is doing, but... Uh, but I don't think it's a, it's going to be a successful long-term strategy. They are not developing the key uh, capabilities of collecting money from lots of different customers in diverse markets. And, so, and they are beginning to do it. It's just they're a bit slow and uh, they've, they're too... Um, if, because they don't have to actually collect money... Uh, they they can uh, you know they can do whatever they want a space shot one day uh, uh, windmills or loons the next yeah. day you, you know they these they don't have to really buckle down and and uh, and envisage a full supply chain with a Ended with a ending with a market where they collect money successfully from their customers in a profitable uh, and, and so what uh, form? So here's where we get to the the crux of your book, and and I wanna I wanna talk about this as, as long as we can. But uh, the way they sort of it, it reminds me actually of the hypnotism discussion. So users think they're getting something for free. Google tells the users, oh, you're getting something for free, so it's what the users want, and so we buy into the fact that really we're giving away all of our data so that they could resell that to advertisers and they make money from the advertisers. Yeah. And, 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 and they hypnotize us with, oh, you could trust us, don't worry, we're Google, our saying used to be, do no evil. And, yeah. and this really applies to all of these companies. And, and where you go in your book is that trust can be transferred over now 
from Google and similar companies to this new kind of innov software innovation, the blockchain. Yeah. And that's where trust will start to to build. So so what do you see as kind of the 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 time frame for that and 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 the development of that and and so on? Well, I I think that uh the time frame is now. I mean, it's happening now. Uh, that uh, you know, when people look at what's been achieved by the blockchain, I think the biggest achievement so far is to s solve the IPO crisis in the United States. I mean, we've we have a ninety percent drop in initial public offerings over the last twenty years, and the number of public companies on the stock market has dropped almost 60%. I mean, yeah, people uh, don't want to deal with being public. Yeah, they don't want to deal with being public. They don't want to, and uh, the number of startups has actually declined. It's having a little flurry now, but, uh, but we have fewer startups. And, uh, and I think, uh, so the big, biggest contribution so far from uh, the blockchain, I think, is the Ethereum blockchain and its platform for initial coin offerings or initial crypto offerings or whatever you want to call them, which has uh, you know, raised $20 billion for several thousand companies over the last 12 months. I mean, it's a tremendous feat. So even and though there's been a decline in cryptocurrency prices, Separating that out with the from the blockchain technology, this is you're seeing t many more companies doing these ICOs to raise money. Like yeah. nobody's nobody's running away from the ICOs, even though they're running away from the crypto a little well, bit. Well, the the, the, the uh, government has sent subpoenas to a lot of people who had successful ICOs. So the government's now trying to do to ICOs what they've already done to IPOs. They pretty much extinguished IPOs except for gigantic companies like Uber. And uh, now they're moving on to ICOs. And, 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 uh, they, but I think they understand the problem. You know, there have been a lot of statements by the SEC that say they don't want to uh, suppress innovation in this area and and let's hope that uh, we don't drive the all the icos to zug switzerland or singapore or some other country because that's what we're doing right now but that's just it though just like the internet couldn't be stopped because it's not a national phenomenon it's yeah. a global phenomenon no one could say oh we're gonna we're gonna make this thing illegal on the internet here and then it's legal everywhere else because the few times that that's occurred, there's always workarounds. Yeah. And the internet is basically just this uniform global platform. Yeah. And so are so is Bitcoin and blockchain. Yeah. So what's so so assuming and you know, Trump just hired a chief of staff that's basically pro blockchain and yeah. pro pro crypto. So what's what do you see? What's gonna happen? I don't next? even know who it is. Who uh, John Kelly, he he was oh, oh, oh. Well John Kelly was it who? Malbini, yeah, so he's pro ICO. Well, that's pro, great. Well, that's, I'm crypto. delighted to hear that. That's wonderful news. I did hear that Mulvaney had taken over, but I didn't uh, know that he's pro crypto. Yes. That's that's a good development, and and I think in general the Trump administration is trying to accommodate uh, cryptocurrencies, and and so, so that's a better sign than China, which 
is trying to suppress them at the moment, or at least uh, sequester them so that you're allowed to pursue cryptocurrencies as long as they don't intrude in the real economy. Well, I think also because China, while it has different views on privacy, like we're, we're talking right now about customer privacy, China, the one where, place where they're a little, you know, more authoritarian still as opposed to capitalists is they want well, yeah. human privacy for their own purposes. But where, so where do you, what do you see are the next steps in kind of the, you know, crypto had this kind of hype at the end of 2017. It yeah. went up to, to these, you know, the coins yeah. themselves went up to these high prices. Now it had what many are calling just a normal slump that we've seen before. We saw it in 2014. We saw it in 2010. Yeah. Um, what are, what are the next steps? What do you see well, happening? Well, I, I always, that we're in the, I, I have a diving board model of entrepreneurship. You know, the entrepreneur goes up on the diving board and he preens and, and shows off his muscles and, and asks for money and, uh, and he uh, uh, finally is ready and he dives. And uh, you don't see him. And, uh, and this happens thousands of times across the economy. And all the people around the swimming pool say, these guys are never going to come up. You know, they're, they're, they're gone. That's the end of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, meanwhile, they're just obsessively working on their products, most of them. You know, they, there have been some Ponzi's and some fantasies and some frauds. But in general, uh, these, are, these are the most serious technologists in the world today are in the crypto field, and they are developing thousands of new companies that are going to emerge over the next uh, 10 years and are going to transform our economy. So, so the and that will establish a new, a new, on the one hand, a new security model for the Internet, which it absolutely needs. I mean, the existing internet security model is bankrupt. And a new financial system for the world economy, because, uh, uh, and this is a more controversial claim, but I, I believe that the current system of central banks and floating currencies is, is, is as bankrupt as the security model of the internet. So, so I, agree, I agree with that. And I want to hit the first point in a second, but I'm going to hit the second point first, because I always sort of feel each new form of currency over the past 5,000 years solves the problems of the older form of currency. So paper money obviously solved the problems of metals and uh, to some extent fiat money solved the problems of paper money that was backed by metals. And now cryptocurrencies are solving the problems of kind of centralized government, you know, Federal Reserve style money because Instead, if you were in China and I wanted to send you money, instead of going through my bank, then my local bank, reserve bank, then my Federal Reserve, then the SWIFT wiring system, then your <laughs> federal bank, then their, your local reserve bank, then your real bank, where every step of the way there are fees, every step of the way there's human and, error, and every step of the way there's no privacy. human error. I'm, I'm being paid from China, and it is absolutely, bizarrely difficult to, to get compensated Right, so this is a real problem. These are people trying to pay me, but they can't do it. The only way they can pay me is give me cash. So in, so in a global <laughs> economy, which we've been moving towards for the past 50 years, 
you need to solve these problems and yeah. cryptocurrency is the only solution that's come across that solves them. So do you see cryptocurrencies as just being kind of an introduction to blockchain and the world will focus on the blockchain technology or is where do you see the value in the in the currency still? I, th I think the cryptocurrencies are are vital. I think that uh, Satoshi tried to create Bitcoin as a new form of gold and he made uh, fundamental errors. He he, uh, he spent too much time in universities and he imagined that gold was running out, that somehow uh, that in order to have a cryptocurrency that mimicked gold, it would have to be capped because gold obviously would be exhausted at some point. And uh, similarly, we had to have uh, mining and with Bitcoin. But, and, but with and Bitcoin, this, and this was a mistake. This was a fundamental mistake. But Bitcoin's uh, it, it could fractionalize, you know, to any extent. So it's almost as if you're just talking about a function of will the Bitcoin price go up as it fractionalizes? Well, I, I, the, no. The, the The question is whether Bitcoin actually uh, becomes money or not. I don't think I think we don't have real money in the world today because money intrinsically is a real thing. It's uh, it 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 uh, measures. It's a measuring stick, and uh, I think that what it measures ultimately is time. That uh, time is what remains scarce when everything else becomes abundant, and if you're gonna and money if it's going to be a measuring stick for the allocation of, of resources and the, invest, and the guidance for investment, uh, for trade-offs between opportunities, it, it, has to, it can't float. It has to actually uh, register real scarcity. And I think uh, all measuring sticks as... System International in Paris has discovered are ultimately based on time. You know the the measuring sticks that enable world trade, for example, the second, the meter, the kilogram, the uh, degree Kelvin, the uh, lumen, the ampere, the mole, all these these measuring sticks that allow you to design a microchip in Tel Aviv and manufacture it in Taipei and uh, assemble it on a circuit board in Shenzhen and market it in Cupertino or wherever, uh, what makes that kind of supply chain possible is that the measuring sticks don't float. The measuring sticks are all... Uh, are all based on physical constants. And when you examine the physical constants in every case, as I've done, you find they all have a frequency in them somewhere. And that, uh, in other words, they're all ultimately governed by the speed of light, the ultimate scarcities in the universe. But, well, and so, and, and the reason trade today is so contentious and why the whole world economy is convulsed with, with 
battles over valuation is that the biggest industry in the world economy today is currency trading. $5.1 trillion a day of currency trading. That's 20, at 75 times almost all the trade in goods and services. It's 25 times all global GDP. And it doesn't even arrive at uh, a measuring stick, at a value that an entrepreneur can depend upon uh, in pricing his goods. He has to, in order to use these floating currencies, he has to hedge every transaction across borders. It's, 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 it's a complete failure. It's not a success. And, so, and until we understand that money is a real thing, it, it was gold until 1971, and the key property of gold is it measured time, which I explain in my, uh, in my book. Uh, I can explain it to you, but uh, it's, uh, it's essentially gold cancels the advance of technology and capital so, and, uh, and leaves the time to extract it as a pretty much a constant over the millennia. And as a result, it became the only real money. So, so I mean, I think that's, that's fascinating. So it doesn't seem necessarily in conflict with crypto. Um, you well, know, it isn't. Oh, the crypto will definitely arrive by their process of experiment and learning. They will eventually arrive at real money and uh, displace these floating currencies, which are spurious money. Right, and and so crypto has a, a more direct connection, say, to to time uh, potentially than gold, which maybe some country finds a mine and we have to go to that country to extract the gold mm -hmm. and so on. So it's sort of more random where you find gold around the world. And that's been kind of the problem a little bit with money, uh, particularly like when the US was in, inflating and, and overspending, we couldn't, we didn't have enough gold. So that was the problem. But with crypto, you could put, whoever is innovating will have the money. Yeah, I, I, think, I think crypto is a real opportunity to improve on gold as, a monetary standard. So, However, gold should not be underestimated because it doesn't corrode. So all the gold in the world remains. So, uh, so the incremental impact of mining in any particular year is relatively insignificant. So the price is incredibly stable and incredibly uh, related to the time to extract it. And so, that's that's really why gold has been the exemplary money for um, most of human human history. So, and certainly since Isaac Newton really formed the gold standard and ignited the Industrial Revolution in two ways. I think his gold standard was just about as original and important as his Principia uh, uh, discovering macrophysics. So, so, so what do you, so are you sort of disconnecting blockchain technology, which is this trust factor, you know, and allowing for peer-to-peer -peer and, and smart contracts and so on. Uh, are you disconnecting that technology from crypto as a currency in, in your mind, or are they still... No, no, they're, like, they're, they're, 
there's they're both it's all part of a creative movement you know i like hashgraph which is uh, hedera which is a different format of crypto it's it's based on all the same uh like essential cryptological uh, functions you know the merkle tree and the gossip protocol and uh, all these uh uh methods of creating a blockchain have uh, also been deployed by uh, hashgraph but they've got they avoid several key steps in most blockchains uh, the the consensus protocol is is um performed without actual proven consensus through voting they they have a mathematical consensus that they generate through virtual voting it's a, it's a really fascinating so uh, all i'm saying is there're lots of creativity out there and uh hashgraph comes from carnegie mellon which uh where you come from too with a lot of good things from uh <laughs> i'm but, proud of it <laughs> i was still not a graduate school though so i don't know <laughs> but uh but so so what do you see are the next steps then for for crypto as as an industry and the currency you know that type of currency you know eventually replacing you know centralized government money well i i think that uh uh, there are a lot of efforts to actually tie to gold, and that that will sort of create a stable coin standard that uh, from which I think it will be possible to launch digital algorithms that can uh, perform better as money than the various uh, contraptions of gold and fiat that uh, actually did perform best in the history of money. I mean, so I think we're we're on the verge of a emergence of a better global money and that better global money will resolve these ridiculous trade conflicts that between US and China which is it's just uh they're silly and uh, but they aren't really trade conflicts they're money conflicts. And uh, as uh, a new global money emerges, real money, uh, I think that uh, we can have a new great era of capitalism after this current uh, period of doldrums. And that global uh, currency is going to be, you're saying it's going to be crypto-based slash blockchain-based, yep. you know, blockchain being just essentially... I'm calling it blockchain, but that's the umbrella of all the things you're talking about, like the hash graph, the Merkle tree, yeah, and all that. No. So blockchain is like the umbrella of that, um, and and makes use of the cryptography and so on to, no. to keep these transactions secure. Um, you let's just look at cryptocurrencies as a whole. You what do you see as a timeline for the and and Bitcoin's under that, but so is Ethereum, so is Zcash, so is all these other currencies. What do you see as a timeline for let's say the next so-called crypto boom or when it could start making a real dent in I think it I mean it's it's start, it's starting we're just in the underwater period you know everybody's out there I'm I've visited these companies they're working like mad and they're trying to solve the security problems of the internet the monetary problems of the world economy the uh you know they're they're addressing uh 
the, our current predicament. And I think they're going to be emerging just as the internet emerged in the early 2000s after a appalling crash of 2000 that both of us experienced vividly. And uh, I think that, uh, but also Google and Facebook and all these other companies, uh, Amazon all emerged. And I think we're going to have a similar uh, experience over the next 20 years. You know, right, because it could be the case that everybody views themselves as let's call it a, a company for, for lack of a better word, mm. where my company, James Inc., has my data yeah. and also has all my sources of income coming into it. Yeah. And then I can maybe securitize it or, or you know, by selling off a piece of my income yeah. or a piece yeah. of my data forever. Or or maybe also I make transactions. Yeah, we'll have equities again. You know, we don't have equities now. I mean, it's r really... Uh, uh, that's that's a great opportunity that uh, uh, what is Sam Lesson was in today's information is uh, has this nice uh, uh, argument about how the real, uh, key role of of cryptocurrencies are going to be create all new forms of equity and this is really critical because uh, debt is is uh, become a kind of doomsday pot in the world economy today. We have $250 trillion of debt that's been generated uh, at, at incredibly low interest rates by all these central banks, ultimately. And and that is is a real threat. It portends a whole a series of, of financial crises in the future. So... Uh, uh, the whole idea that equities are something that have to be really closely regulated and you don't want people to issue them promiscuously and you want to be sure that they're qualified investors with at least a couple degrees from Carnegie Mellon before you can really be allowed to uh, issue stock in your ventures while Anybody, well, anybody can uh, borrow whenever you want. You know, there's just a mass uh, interest is deductible from your taxes. I mean, the whole system favors debt over equity. And uh, debt is much lower information than equity. And it's, it's uh, not as good a way to finance enterprise. And so one of the things that the cryptocurrency movement is doing is uh, generating uh, new ways, new paths to issuing equity. And I, I, I hope this, uh, this is one of the few things that the Muslims kind of got right. And, and Muslim economics may have lots of flaws, but, but they do understand that equity is better than debt. And that's, uh, that's something that uh, may be a unity that's emerging from this new well, movement. Well, well, you look at current uses of crypto and blockchain technology, like people think just because the price of a Bitcoin goes down, that suddenly the whole, this was, this happened to me in 2000 or 2001. I was running a venture capital firm. And as soon as internet stocks started to go down, one of my partners was a Wall Street banker. And he, I had, 
this is a story, but I had an arcade game in my in my <laughs> office. He 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 smashed the window of my arcade game, and he just he yelled, "The internet is a scam!" And he just walked out. <laughs> I never saw him again. I never saw him again. And I I sort of feel like the same thing is happening now. That oh, his price fell for a year, so everyone's crying and. And and guys like Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan are saying, "Oh, it's a scam." But the reality is, you go to J.P. Morgan's finance department; they're reinventing trade finance and factoring, yeah, factoring yeah. all with blockchain and yeah. Zcash. Yeah. Zcash is blockchain because of the privacy. So they're transforming their debt operations into more blockchain operations. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what's already happening. What I wonder is, is that is the is it the technology or is it the currency or is it or are they both together? Like I think they're both together. They both they they really are a whole new paradigm for a new internet and a new world economy. And it's, so that, it's the new paradigm that uh, follows the old paradigm. And because supply is somewhat fixed for either reliable coins or even the supply of some of these coins, it kind of means the way to play it is price is going to go up in yeah, these yeah. currency in these cryptocurrency yeah. exchanges i think so i think that ultimately we want to look for for stable coins currencies that root their scarcity in the ultimate mm -hmm. scarcity of time that actually is the fundamental scarcity in the universe as it affects human Enterprise. Yeah, it's fascinating to link it to, to time. So let me let me ask you this idea. This is an idea I have. It's not it's not in your book. And I know they want me to, he's about to tell me to, to wrap up in a second. But I do like this idea that cryptocurrencies, rather than any equity thing, cri crypto is a good way to securitize yourself. So if mm -hmm. I want to say so-and-so is graduating a great college, he's really smart. Uh, well, take out the college part. He's really smart, he knows how to program, he seems really entrepreneurial. I want. I'm willing to pay him five percent or her five percent for her future income. Seems like crypto is a good way to do it because with blockchain, I can trust that future income is going to no. go in that black box. There's no. nothing, nothing funky with accountants yeah. or escrows <laughs> yeah. or law, law firm. Yeah. Yeah. You remove all of those intermediaries. Yeah. It's just in the software. It's the smart contracts yeah. in the software. I kind of think that, that there should be a worldwide people exchange. Yeah. Well, that's that's just what crypto offers. I mean, uh, economies ultimately prosper in proportion as they release the creativity of, of human minds. And human minds are not all agglomerated in clouds and concentrated in uh, data warehouses next to glaciers and windmills. It's, uh, it's in human minds, which are the ultimate singularity. And uh, they're uh, imprinted with DNA that uh, actually uh, represents the kind of private key uh, through which in uh, the cryptocosm we can participate individually in the global economy. So, so, and you're saying essentially because of all the regulations, all the fees, all the problems with like fiat money and current equities, cryptocurrency and the technologies around it and the problems that are being solved every day right now in that space are going to be the next way that this creativity gets unlocked That's as opposed right. to let's say the the engineers still at Google or Facebook or whatever 
That's right. That's essentially what Life After Google says, is that uh, the models and the philosophies, indeed the system of the world expressed by the current Silicon Valley generation is being displaced by a new generation that uh, is plighting its troth to the cryptocosm. Praise Jesus. I totally agree with everything you say. Uh, George Gilder, futurist extraordinaire. I've been following your stuff forever, it feels like. I'm so happy well, to actually... I. The great thing about doing a podcast is I actually get to meet you face-to-face and I well, get to meet all these amazing people face-to-face. Your book, Life After Google, is a must-read for people who want to understand even the history of technology, let alone the future of technology. I really love how you kind of use your beginning stuff on security and then Girdle and then Von Neumann and then going straight up into Google and Facebook and then cryptocurrencies and blockchain. It's just a wonderful way of telling the story of this past century of technology mm-hmm. and, and what's to come. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Right. I highly recommend the book, Life After Google. If you're going to read any tech book, read Life After Google and... Uh, thanks for coming on the well, podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's it's an honor to be on your show. I hope when I'm 80, I'm running five miles because I don't even uh, run five miles now. Maybe I got to start training <laughs> now. So thanks. Right, thank you. 